Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Tonight, we're going to talk about healthcare reform. It seems like a particularly good topic, uh, given the fact that it is an election year, and it's something that um, different political candidates have been talking about. Also, um, you know, with the with the major public health event happening with the COVID nineteen virus, um, you know, it's it's a time to start um, start reflecting and and think about what's going on in our healthcare system. This is obviously a pretty complicated and deep topic, and you know, even over several episodes, we couldn't cover everything. But what I'd like to do is talk about some of the basic concepts to help you have a good framework to think through different um, different options that exist for improving the way we deliver healthcare in the United States or in whatever country you're listening in. Um, if you if you look at rankings around the world, you'll see that different countries do a pretty different lo- uh, job, right? Different different. Uh, qualities of delivery of healthcare. Some countries do a very good job. Um, some countries do a poor job. Sometimes that's correlated with the wealth of the nation. Sometimes it's correlated with cultural or um, sociological factors or the institutions available in the country. Um, so you have some countries that typically don't rank that high in a lot of things that do rank well in healthcare. And you've got you know countries like the United States that is certainly punching below its weight in terms of healthcare outcomes. So we could start with talking, uh, as usual, you know, being, being American, this is uh, United States centric. We could start talking about some of the causes of high medical costs in the United States. Um, I want to go, you know, right off the bat and talk about um, the, the mystery cost disease. I sort of talked about this in the episode on the ratchet effect, Um you know, I talked about a, a particular uh, cost disease, I think it was called Brunel's to- cost disease, um, which which is what happens economically when, you know, a particular sector starts paying higher pay and that causes, you know, prices in general raise and it makes it harder to hire people into other fields, even though there might not be the same productivity gains as the field that started paying more. Um, and, and so we see this sort of cost disease idea um, come up. But in the case of medicine and education, whatever cost disease they have doesn't really reflect uh, the pay of the, the workers. Um, certainly in the case of education, um, you know, academics and teachers aren't making significantly more than they were in years past, certainly not compared to inflation. Um, and in education, they're doing what they can to reduce the cost by using adjuncts. And we'll, we'll see as we go through the kind of system that even in the United States, uh, we're, we're doing that in the medical field. Um, so we're trying to find ways to reduce the cost to provide medical care through lower staff salaries. But doctors have always made a rather good salary, um, you know, at least in the 20th century. That was pretty common. It's always been a very respected profession. And so um, there are some other things going on, and I'm not going to, you know, get into what they might be, but I imagine that a lot of them have to do with, um, you know, kind of kind of common regulatory type issues, liability costs, compliance costs, and um, 
and then administration organizations. These would be organizations that, you know, sit between the doctor and the insurance company and then the insurance companies themselves, right? There's a, you know, a villain for everyone in this sort of story. Um, one of the causes of high medical cost, though, is about the limited number of doctors. Um, it, you know, kind of pretty typical supply and demand situation. If there aren't enough doctors, the doctors are going to just cost more, right? Because they'll be able to be competitive in the market. Um, you're going to have to find some way to ration the doctor's time, reduce the doctor's time. But if we're involving doctors in decision making, they only have so much time, right? They are still limited to their ability to to sit and think and talk. And so you're not going to see the sort of productivity gains in medicine, um, productivity per hour, that you would see in a field like, um, you know, software engineering, where better tooling can make an engineer far more efficient. Or a field like, um, you know, chemical engineering, where you can scale up a process and use less and less workers. And that's just not the case in a field that involves people spending their time, and, and medicine is one of those. It is, it's the same fundamental limitation that happens with um, barbershops. It takes a certain amount of time to cut someone's hair. You can put more barbers in a barbershop, but you can't make a barber cut that many more uh, customers' hairs in, in a given time period. And so that that is sort of a fundamental limitation of the way medicine is delivered. We have to have a doctor in the loop for, for many decisions, particularly because relying on their training and experience to give good advice. Uh, and then we also use doctors to gate access to certain types of medications. Um, and, I, and I'd say that's actually for good reason. I mean, there are certain classes of medications which uh, can interact with one another in an adverse way. Um, you know, there might be off-label uses, and these are things that someone with a tremendous amount of experience and training like a like a skilled doctor can would have can use to to treat you effectively. Um, medications are another source of high costs in healthcare. Um, there are some medicines that are relatively inexpensive, certainly over-the-counter medicines are. When you start getting into prescription medicines, they can be tremendously expensive. You know, $600, $800 for a, a dose. Um, that's a, you know, or, or for a, you know, a month's dosage. It's incredibly expensive. Um, the reasons for that can vary. Sometimes the medicines are hard to make. Um, sometimes it's rent-seeking. There are different reasons, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, hospital service fees is another, you know, little sneaky way that healthcare gets expensive. You get a line-item bill from the hospital for a mucus removal device, which is actually a box of tissues. They want to charge you thirty dollars for it. Well, you could go to Walmart or CVS and get a box of tissues for far less. And that's, you know, that, that's part of what goes into this. I think that has to do with sort of the administration, administrative layer I was talking about a second ago. Uh, another big issue is fee-for-service. Um, the model for much of the healthcare delivery in the United States is you go to the doctor, he performs six services, like he runs a test, does a checkup on you, has a, a nurse or medical assistant take your weight, um, you know, interprets the results, lances a, a boil, whatever the doctor's doing, each one of those things is a service, and each of those ends up as a separate line item on the bill. It causes an economic incentive for medical providers, whether that's doctors or organizations, to run more tests because they can bill more. 
Uh, and that kind of conflicts or compounds when it comes to third-party payer systems, which is what we typically use in the United States, at least for a lot of the service delivery, where they know that they're going to get paid through the insurance company. And so the customer isn't particularly price sensitive and saying, well, do I really need this? Um, and so there are other other models where you can do, um, you know, fee for treatment or, um, you know, different payer methods that, that kind of remove that conflict of interest between the, you know, the cost of, and number of tests that are delivered and the the outcome. Of course, there is always the defensive medicine concept that sort of fits in with fee-for-service and sort of doesn't, where a doctor doesn't want to not take the chance and order the test, because if you take the chance and order the test and you don't catch anything, nothing bad happens, but if you don't do it and you missed something, something bad does happen, then they're going to be kind of held liable for it, I guess, and whether you know ethically or um, legally. And so, you know, that that has a bit of a ratchet effect sort of a, a feeling to it. Um, I would say another giant piece of this in the United States is price opacity, which would be the opposite of price transparency. Uh, you have no idea when you go to the doctor what it's going to cost. You have no idea when you go to the hospital what the actual final outcome will be. They're required to list um, hospital prices on their websites, like these hospitals are, in some electronic format. It's updated about once a year, but it's it's very difficult to consume and, and not, not at all reasonable to consume it as a as an individual consumer. Besides that, your insurance company has negotiated special rates. It's it's a very complicated and opaque system. I had a medical procedure done a while back and I had to pay a fee to the surgeon. I had to pay a fee to the anesthesiologist. I had to pay a fee to the facility. And then, you know, there are a bunch of other weird ancillary fees that all came separately. And you have no way of knowing that going into the procedure, right? Um, so price opacity really impacts how things are charged because you, even if you want to be an informed shopper, you can't be an informed shopper in today's market. Um, that's really one of the problems with high deductible plans is that there's no way for you to know what you're going to be able to do. So with that, let's talk about the different payment methods that exist. Um, there is a the, the single-payer system, you hear that a lot, um, talking about certain countries that use a single-payer model. Um, the most famous is, of course, the United Kingdom with the National Health Service there. They have a single-payer, which is the government, and it it uh, you know administers the entire health system for the entire country as a, as a taxpayer-funded thing. Um, there are also second- and third-party payer systems that would be possible there so um, you know we could talk about what each of those are but second party would generally be the insurance company um, delivering the service if you want to think of it in that sense or the um, hospital paying for it is another way to look at that and then the third party payer is the insurance company paying your doctor for the service so the first party is you the doctor is a second party the insurance company is a third party and they're the ones in charge of paying so uh, first party payer that's when you pay, and if you're if it's a full cash-only first-party payer system, you go to the doctor, you hand them cash, you will be price sensitive. Anyone would be. There are doctors that operate this way, and I've seen some in you know in areas that I've lived that are very highly rated. But if you've got good insurance or you know generally insurance, you're probably a little reluctant to go to a first-party payer doctor because 
you're not taking advantage of this insurance benefit that you have. Um, you could also do first-party payer with catastrophic care insurance. So this isn't too different from third-party payer, but it is important to make a distinction where catastrophic care is concerned because catastrophic care coverage is something you can't predict. Um, you know, you get some kind of a cancer or a traumatic uh, brain injury or something like that. That's a uh, you know rare, extremely expensive to treat, long-term problem. That is a separate way to do things. Um, so you can add in catastrophic care coverage, and um, that gives you sort of this this way of if it's of looking at things where you deal with the things that are a little more expected and affordable, and the things that are out of your control are insured, and that works the way real insurance or regular insurance does, right? Where you're paying a little bit each month for something you hope doesn't happen, and if it does happen then the insurance company pays out. On average, they make a profit, but in any one accident you know, or, or event, they don't. Um, and so, in general, right, the insurance company is going to write, write up the insurance policy such that they will make a profit over time, but you're, you're paying this amount as a way to ensure that if something bad happens, it doesn't exceed your, your capacity to deal with it. Right, so if if your house burns down, you probably don't have uh, you know two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is to rebuild it and replace the things that are inside. So you pay a little bit each month in the off chance that that would happen. Um, there's another version of this, which is first party payer still, um, where you have catastrophic care insurance and required health savings account. This is the method that Singapore uses, and I really like this method. The way Singapore does it, they take um, uh, a certain amount of money and you're required to put that into your health savings account each month. If you are below a particular income level, then the government will put some in for you to make up the difference. If you're above that income level, you have to do it yourself. Um, I don't, I, I'm sure that's a, a scale of some kind, probably a, a rather smooth sliding scale, but maybe not. I don't, I don't know the details of where that cutoff is, but you're required to save money for your own health savings account so you can take care of paying for your medical coverage and you get to make the decision of whether or not you want to have something taken care of. Um, they also require you to carry catastrophic care insurance. And then they have incentives set up throughout the system so that, for example, if you're an older person and you have extra money in your HSA, you you know might be tempted to waste that money and, and some sense, whatever that means, I don't know, plastic surgery or something, I'm not sure what wasting your HSA money would mean, um, because it would only be allowed to be used in medical procedures. But you still have an incentive to save it because you can take that HSA money and pass it on as an inheritance to your children and grandchildren. So it's a it's a, it's a possible way of doing it. It's a model that I like because it does allow um, for the market to operate in a, in a market sort of way, in the way that tends to bring prices down. But it still provides a way for everyone to have a you know, universal base level of care. And for everyone, you also have a, a way to take care of these you know, major issues. So I think, by and large, it's, it's a pretty positive system. Um, another, another version that's out there is the second pay, party pair with a first party contribution. So this is like the way Kaiser Permanente operates. Kaiser Permanente, you become a member of Kaiser, they're your insurance company, but they're also your medical provider. 
So you pay them a certain amount each month. When you go in to get medical care, you pay a deductible. But after that, everything's covered because they're taking from their own money. So if their doctor says you need something, they know you really need it. Um, and you might say, well, you know, they've got the same corporate incentives to make profits and things and, and take money out. And they do. But we also can see that Kaiser's competing in the same market as any other healthcare company, whether it's an insurance company or hospital, or whatever. They are consistently about 30% less expensive than every other insurance system out there in the United States. So the fact that it's an integrated system works very, very well um, in, in keeping costs under control. Being 30% cheaper in this market is, is pretty remarkable. And that's with, you know, them, them competing. So their, their doctors cost as much as anyone else's doctors, right? They can't pay significantly less and expect to get doctors. Um, and of course, the the system I already talked about, right, uh, is the third-party payer system. So the third-party payer system is a system where you've got a third party and they pay, right? So imagine if you were going to go buy a shirt and someone else is paying and, you know, you didn't really know anything about how and why they pay. You just go and get whatever shirt you want. <clears throat> if you have to pay for the shirt, you're going to take into account fashion and your budget, right? You're going to say, well, boy, that $900, you know, super silk shirt is nice, but I'd probably be just as happy in that $100 dress shirt, and I'd probably look just as good. Yeah, I guess I'll save the $800. But if it's someone else's money that you don't really care about, yeah, I get the $900 one, right? And that's kind of the problem with third-party payer, the, the health health insurance system that we typically use. With third-party payer, you have the first party, you, going to make a transaction with the second party, the doctor, and someone else is paying for it. So you never really care what it costs. As your your whole decision process and whether or not to see a particular doctor is whether or not they take your insurance because you don't want to pay extra. And so that's kind of where it stops. You mix that in with the price opacity problem, and now you, you're just in this situation where no one wants to, you know, no one even can find a good way to bring down the cost of their health care. So that's, th those are the different systems that are out there, the different options. Um, there may be some other variants you could come up with, but those are the main ones. And I, I wanted to point out Singapore and Kaiser because I think they're the two most interesting options to look at because they're a little different than the typical proposals you hear. Um, you know, and there are a lot of proposals that kind of come up in the political arena. Moving past um, payment methods, I want to talk a little bit about dealing with a shortage of doctors. So the first thing you probably should understand about why there would be a shortage of doctors is the system that is used to train doctors. Johns Hopkins is the, the one who kind of came up, the, the, the institution that came up with modern medical training. And the guy who did it, um, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that this was in the era where, you know, cocaine was in everything and the, the doctor who was doing all the training was a, you know, was on cocaine. And so he was just like, you know, up at all hours and working crazy hours. And that kind of explains some of the things you hear about medical school and, and residencies where they expect you to work these 24 hour shifts where you barely have time to sleep. I don't think there's any amount of medical literature that says that that's good for learning or good for health. So it's it's a bit hypocritical, in my opinion, that that that's the expectation that they put on doctors. I think a you know an approach that 
allows for more rest and, and sleep would be probably better. The doctor training system works this way. You start out going to college. You're probably going to take something related to medicine like biology or pre-med. Then you're going to apply to medical school. You're going to take a test called the MCAT. Um, if you're accepted into medical school, <clears throat> you're going to start going. You'll probably take out a big loan if you're taking medical school domestically. Then you're going to have to pass a series of tests called the USMLE. There are um, three steps, for a to which are total out to force uh, tests. Step one happens, I believe, during medical school, and it's about things like biochemistry and biology. Step two is uh, an in-person like doctor simulation component with a, what's called a standardized patient, where the prospective doctor um, or the, the graduated doctor who's looking to get licensed, they go up to this patient, the patient has a series of symptoms, and they go to an examination, ask some questions, fill out a chart, the standardized patient um, puts in some remarks on things. The testing center will review the um, outcomes of the testing. So if there was a, um, you know, a problem with the chart or a bad diagnosis, then they'll, they'll do that as part of the test. And then there's also another written test, which is about diseases. And then uh, step three happens after you've been licensed. And that's part of getting your specialty. Um, so as, as part of this, you have to pass the step two tests to get into a residency. Now, a residency is for people who are graduated doctors who are licensed, but they're getting a specialization, whether it's a specialization in general medicine, radiology, or any other field of medicine. Um, the... The residency is done by a teaching hospital in the United States. It's generally funded by the federal government. Uh, and then once you're you're done being a resident and you become kind of a full doctor, you can become an attending physician or you can move into private practice or, uh, or work wherever you, you know, work for the rich and famous if you want. Um, doctors are required to do continuing education, which they might do through conferences, through additional classes, anything to continue their training and stay up to date. So overall, the general concept of this system makes sense, right? You build knowledge upon knowledge, you have testing checkpoints, and you, you gener generally are moving from less patient contact to more patient contact, right? In college, you're not really dealing with patients at all. By the time you're a resident, you've had enough training to be a doctor, and you've proven a certain amount of knowledge. And so then you can treat patients, but it's not until you've completed your residency that you're kind of fully independent. But there are problems with the system. Um, the number one problem with the system right now is that there are limited residency spots. So this is a big deal because there are doctors who are otherwise qualified to be a doctor. Um, They've they've passed the medical licensing exam, so they're they're licensed. They've been through, you know, the four years of college and three to four years of medical school. There's nothing wrong with them. They they know how to be a doctor. However, there's not enough residencies available. There's not enough spots, and so every year they go through this process called the match. And the way the match works is they apply to a number of hospitals in order. The hospitals rank applicants in order 
and they use a particular system to, to match hospitals and applicants. And this is an interesting thing because if you look at uh, what's called the stable marriage problem, it's a you know a way of arranging matches like this. This is the exact system that they use, the exact algorithm that they use, um, and they do that in a way so that no one ends up at a medical school where they would want they'd want to be at a different medical school, and that medical school would want them there instead of who they have. That's that's how they arrange things. And so that does a pretty good job of getting people to the medical schools that they want, the best one that they want to go to, that will take them. But it doesn't help when there's not enough residents. There's a shortage of doctors in the United States. That's one of the key problems that we have. There's just not enough doctoring to go around. And so because of that, if you don't have enough residency spots, it doesn't matter how many medical school spots you open up, you could open up 100 new medical schools, you're not going to get more doctors out. You're not going to get more qualified doctors, and that's the problem. To, to operate on their own, to treat patients on their own, they need to have more residencies. Another thing to consider is that licensing a doctor is like licensing a driver. Uh, I forget where I saw this, um, but it made it made me laugh. It was someone saying, you know, that doctor's licensed. He must be okay. That driver is licensed. He must be okay. Like, one of those doesn't sound right, and maybe the other one shouldn't either. Right? Maybe a license isn't enough. Um, maybe the license is being used to reduce the number of doctors, right? The The American Medical Association represents doctors, and doctors do have an interest in limiting the number of doctors that are there because it helps to maintain the scarcity, which helps to keep the, their prices high, right? Um, and so what's happened is because the American Medical Association has been keeping kind of a lid on things and the federal government hasn't been opening more residency positions, other types of healthcare providers have kind of been stepping up. Now, I, I will backtrack a little bit before I move into that topic because you might be wondering what, what the federal government has to do with this. It, it comes back to what I mentioned earlier, which is funding. In the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, the federal government limited the amount of money they'd spend funding residency spots, and that's the primary source of residency funding. It's done through, um, I think, the Medicaid program or something like that. And so because of that law, um, trying to keep a balanced budget, we're kind of limited in the number of residency positions that are available. And so what we're seeing now is the effect of that over a you know, long period of time as the population grew and the economy grew, but the number of residency spots didn't, right? That we're, we're unable to keep a consistent ratio of doctors to people because of that. Um, if more funding sources opened up for, um, for residencies, whether that was you know private or um, you know donors or, or self-funded by the doctors for that matter, you'd probably see a, a pretty good increase in supply in doctors. So let's talk about the um, different types of doctors. Um, well, I don't want to say different types of doctors, different types of healthcare providers, because a lot of them aren't doctors. It's the names that the letters that come after the name and they're important because they represent 
what sort of training has been had. So one of knows is an MD. That's a medical doctor. That's the traditional medical doctor training, allopathic medicine, right? They learn about, you know, medicines and pills and, and physiology and, and anatomy and all the different parts of medicine. And they go through that sort of traditional doctor training system. There's another type of doctor, which is doctor of osteopathy. That's a DO. And it's not that different than an MD. It used to be a little, a lot more different, but over time it's become more like a standard allopathic MD. Um, the big difference is that they're trained to be more holistic in their approach. But in practice, I don't think what they do is, is all that different. Um, so those are the two that you look at that, and you know, well, could these guys are doctors, right? Then you move down, and sometimes you've got these other other places where people are not a doctor, but in the in the medical sense, they're not an MD or a DO, but they will get a PhD in, say, nursing, and so there'll be a, a nurse practitioner that has a doctor title, right? Um, and so that can, I think, confuse people. So you have a physician's assistant. That's pretty different from a doctor. Um, they don't have to go through a residency before they treat patients and they do one to two years less training than you would get in medical school. So if it's kind of like a, a master's degree version of, of an MD, but it stops with the master's degree. It doesn't continue on with, um, your, you know, your residency and, and all the additional training. And this is that's a pretty big difference because you're you're missing out a lot of the additional training. Physicians assistants have traditionally been required to work under a doctor, with the doctor overseeing what they're doing. Um, there are some places where that may not be necessary in the future. There, there's definitely a push from the kind of uh, group of physicians assistants to change that. Um, and, and you have to decide right, like how you feel about that because if they've had less training and they're operating independently, that that could be a, a risk to you, right? Now, if you've got something simple, it's probably not. If the PA has had a lot of experience in the field, you know, they've been a PA for 15 years, then they probably know as much as a, a, you know, a doctor with a little bit less experience, right? Because experience adds up in, in a field like this. Um as you move down from a PA, you have a nurse practitioner. Uh, a nurse practitioner has far less training. <clears throat> it's, you know, it can be less than four years of schooling total. Um, there's a small pool of questions questions that they use for licensing, and the questions are public. That's not a good recipe for getting people who are necessarily knowledgeable. You can very easily pass a licensing exam through memorization without understanding it. And that's kind of a box checking exercise that that shows a far less level of, um, of education. Now, again, that's nothing wrong with nurse practitioners. I'm sure a lot of them are great. Um, and certainly as they gain more experience, they're going to, you know, in their, in their narrow field, uh, they're reasonably intelligent person. They're going to catch up to, to doctor, the doctor in that field eventually. Um, they may not have the same theoretical training, though, as particularly NPs don't get the same theoretical training that a doctor does. PAs may or may not. I'm not as familiar with their curriculum, but the theoretical training is is a different thing than the practical training. 
if you get practical training, they teach you how things work now. If you have a theoretical training, you're able to come up with more novel solutions, right? It's you're you're able to analyze things better, and so that's a big difference in the way that the training works. Um, NPs are also nurse practitioners are also trying to get the right to form their own practices without a doctor involved. Um, personally, I'd like to see more doctors and more doctor involvement in the practices rather than having nurse practitioners operate independently, because I think having some some kind of basis in the level of expertise is really what we need. Um, you know, along with maybe a better rating system that's uh, you know more like the Uber Stars or the Yelp ratings or things like that. Uh, we should recognize though that it's a continuum of training. If you think about the way that they they do it now, you're either an MD or a DO or a PA or NP. Right, you're you're one of those. You're basically in those two buckets. You can either operate independently, or you can operate under a doctor. But there's there's a continuum of training there, right? And a continuum of experience. Uh, if you have a, a PA who's been treating patients for 30 years in, a, in an emergency room, they're probably going to be a more skilled person in that emergency room than a, a resident who's in the emergency room, right? So there's a continuum of skills that are there. Um, that said, you know, over time, I, I think, you know, with the theoretical training and continuing education, the doctor's probably going to maintain the edge on average year for year because the, it's a more in-depth type of training. Um, there are some places that are starting to have things that are called either assistant physicians or house physicians. These are trained doctors. They went to medical school, but they did not complete a residency. So this is an interesting continuum of training. They probably had some exposure to doctor you know, to to patients throughout the medical school process, and so these are are people that probably have a higher level of training. And given the experience, they're going to be kind of in the same position over time as an, any other MD or DO. And so you could certainly imagine these roles helping to relieve that doctor shortage, and and provide a lot of benefit into the community. Um, so the solutions overall. Um, you can increase the residency spots. Um, you know, this could be through federal funding. That's always a problem because there's a lot of competing priorities. You could allow doctors to self-fund so they could get the residency spot if they pay for it, you know, with a loan or whatever. You could have uh, private institutions fund it. You could have state-funded residency spots. Um, maybe you have some strings attached to that where you have to practice medicine in the state for a certain period of time or you have to pay it back. There's other ways that money could get into that system. Um, adding more assistant physician or house physician laws, allowing this class of trained individuals be able to practice medicine, you know, either as part of an institution like a hospital or a, a medical clinic or under the supervision of a doctor. Um, this is going to really help to build things up. And, you know, maybe maybe there's a certain amount of supervision as you go down and you kind of recognize that certain people are going to be better equipped to handle certain problems and maybe you do let nurse practitioners run independently on certain things but for other things they need to talk to the PA or the DO or the MD that's around and you know same thing the house physician they haven't had a full residency so Maybe they have a pretty wide range of things that they can do, but there's some things that they can't do without talking to an attending physician of some kind. That sort of thing would create a system that recognizes the difference in training, 
and gets rid of treating as just one or two levels. And if you allow, like, allow for capabilities in accordance with the training and experience, you're able to really treat, have a better supply of medical professionals being able to treat what's needed. Now, there's still going to be a skill mismatch because if there's all of a sudden a lot of need for medical care in some area that only the MDs are capable of doing or, or you know, MDs and PAs with four extra years of experience are capable of doing, then there's still going to be a mismatch, but you have more options available. And that's, that's a big deal. Um, licensing through testing. Just one thing to consider, at least partially, is testing test-taking skills rather than medical skills. And there may be a way to take a more comprehensive look at things. So in a lot of college courses, for example, you have a final that you have to take. And with that final, you are able to, you know, prove your knowledge. And it counts for some percentage of your grade, maybe 20% of your grade or 25% of your grade. But there's also homework, there's quizzes, there's projects that you turn in. And all that together determines your final grade. So maybe it's possible to take a more comprehensive look at someone's behavior and understanding and skill in a medical setting, you know, whether that's with patients or through uh, classwork and projects and things, where you can figure out someone's skill level separately from the test because the test, you know, the fact that there are test preparation programs, right? Kaplan has them and and there's lots of people saying, yeah, this is the best way to take the test and pass the test and answer the questions. It shows that there's a focus on the tests and that may or may not be a focus on the skills. Depends on the person. So if we can pull away from just this test being large gating thing and being a factor in gating this based on skill level, we could really come to a, possibly another way to increase supply. Um, without without removing quality from the system. I think we'll leave it there for tonight. Um, when we continue this, we can talk about the cost of medicine and go into a little bit more about fee-for-service. I appreciate you listening tonight. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brightervening.com.